we've been in a series called Torn Veil, and uh, I want us to go ahead and jump right to the scriptures. We're going to begin this morning in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. We can put that first slide up there. Guys, there's so many verses and portions of scripture that speak to this. I've been trying to uh, pick different ones every week. Uh, just so that we can get a really wide breadth of, of just, just this, this idea, this theme of the torn veil. If you're not familiar with, um, with the story, the Gospels tell it in quite explicit fashion that when Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross, just before he breathed his last breath, the veil in the temple, the curtain, if you will, that separated uh, People, unclean, normal, sinful, broken people like us that separated people from God, the very presence of holy God, the, the, the place where he dwelt, the holy of holies. There was this curtain that separated us from our maker. And just before Jesus died, the veil was torn in two, thus making a way for the creature to become back into right relationship with our creator. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus or through the death of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest, Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. So we've been looking at what life might look like on the other side of the veil. What might our lives and the, our everyday aspects of our lives look like lived out in the reality of the veil that's been torn of the reality that we're no longer trying to get in. We're no longer trying to earn our way into God's presence. We're no longer trying to clean ourselves up so that we might gain God's favor. But because of what Jesus did, because of his blood spilt, the curtain has been removed, and we can now experience life in the presence of our maker. The apostle Paul refers that as to, he refers as that as the new way of the spirit in his letter to the Romans. So that will, that's what we've been talking about. Um, we've been going for a few weeks now. If you weren't around, we took a vote at the very outset of our little summer series, and I, I simply posed the question, what do you guys, what life categories would you like to see most impacted by the reality of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross? And I think there was like 20 options to choose from with a couple of other blanks to fill in as well. And uh, we voted. The results weren't at all surprising. I believe number one was work. Number two was, I think we can go to the next slide, actually. Yeah, we did an introduction. We did work, stress, family, marriage. Uh, last week, Pastor Mark LaRue talked about suffering and health and well-being. Number four, most, uh, most votes out of all of the categories was actually money. And so today, we're going to look at Money and the cross. You can go to the next slide, Caitlin. Money and the cross. So here we are. 
at church, and we're going to go there. We're going to talk about money. Who feels excited? Really? Really? Okay. I'm excited. Um, guys, let's just, let's just address the elephant in the room. And some of you might just be genuinely excited because you love thinking about money and you're like, what's the big deal? Let's talk about money. Money is like an everyday part of life. I would love to see how Christianity has anything to say about money in my life. Let's go for it. Some of you are thinking like, please no. Can we just not? I have really, really bad experiences of church and money. Can, can we just not talk about it? Mm-hmm, I get it. Uh, others of you might be slightly indifferent. Some of us might just be uncomfortable with the topic of money in general. Uh, religion aside, we just, you say money and just my stomach starts to do somersaults. Um, probably because you just don't quite have enough of it. And uh, maybe you have debt. Maybe you're just struggling to get your budget to, to line up. And so money money's a tricky one. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that no one has the problem of having too much money in the room? Anyone? <laughs> you just slip up your hand, I will note your presence. <laughs> one, one time, let me, let me share this story with you and then we'll get right back to the scriptures. Um, I, was, this was, I was working as a missionary in London, which is where I met my wife, and we started our family. And part of working as a full-time missionary is you have the, the great privilege of raising your own salary. Um, we call it building a ministry partnership team because it's more than just raising money. You're, you're assembling a team of people to, to partner with you in ministry. Um, so I was doing that, and um, I had the opportunity to meet a guy I'd never met him before. He was a banker in London, really nice guy, a Christian, and through a, a friend of a friend, he had agreed to get coffee with me. And we sat down and just, just kind of getting to know each other a little bit. Uh, I told him what I was doing, and, and he understood that I needed money and, and all of that. And we had a really nice chat, and then, you know, I was to follow up later. At the very end of our meeting, I said, is there anything I can pray for you for? And he said, yes, I'm so glad you asked. I have a serious prayer request. And I braced myself. He said, my dad just passed away. I said, oh, I'm so, so sorry. He's like, no, no, that's, it, it's fine, thank you, but that's... That's not actually what I need prayer for. He was very old. It was, it was time. He went home to be with the Lord. I was like, okay. He said, here's my prayer request. I just inherited a massive amount of money, and I don't, I don't know what to do with it. So here I am, the missionary, begging for money, and he's saying, here's my prayer request. I have too much money. I need wisdom in what to do with it. Naturally, I'm thinking like, hang on a second. I'm feeling led by the Spirit. <laughs> I resisted, I resisted that, that would, have not, that would not have been cool, um, but I just prayed, I said, God, give, give him wisdom, help him, lead him, amen, and then I walked away, and the Holy Spirit, I promise you, I, I felt this so strongly, was in fact prompting me to, to turn around and go back and like talk to him. It was more like, fool, like, what, how, can I be more obvious? So I called him later. Long story short, he ended up paying for my seminary degree in London because I just said, hey, look, I don't want to be insensitive. I don't, you know, I don't want to cross the line, but I actually do have a real need. And um, it was amazing. So if anyone needs prayer about what to do with all their money, I can totally bless you. I can help you. (laughs) 
All right. <laughs> How do you feel about money? What do you do? Go to the next slide, please. What do you do to manage your money pressures? Probably don't have enough. And there's a couple of different ways we can sort of deal with the emotions of just needing more money. And you can look up, you know, the polls and whatnot. There's some, some interesting Gallup polls to do with how Americans feel about money. Most of us generally are just worried about money. And you can look the, the, the data up for yourselves. We're slightly worried about money, whether it's retirement, uh, you know, medical bills, or just paying rent, etc. What do you do to manage your money pressures? And more importantly, what does God say we should do? So this is the big question. What does God say? What do the scriptures teach us about how we're to handle, enjoy, steward, spend, save, manage our money, particularly in light of the cross? Now, we're going to take a long way around. I'm going to back way up. We're actually going to touch a little bit into the Old Testament, and then we're going to build our way back up to the cross. So are you guys ready? You with me? You still excited? Mm, not as much. Okay. What does God say we should do about it? Give. In a nutshell, this is God's direction and how we're to think about and steward the money, resources in general, to be sure. But since we're talking about money specifically, he says to give. He says to give. I'm going to give to you so that you might give. I'm going to bless you so that you might be a blessing. This is the big picture. This is the meta-narrative. This is the theme that runs throughout. God gives so that we might give. Whatever you got has been given to you so that you might be a conduit of God's blessings. Let's look at a couple of scriptures. Next slide, please. Proverbs. Now, I could list about 20. Obviously, we won't do that. We'll look at three. Proverbs chapter 11, verses 24 to 25. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. And this is, this is one of my favorite. It's, it's slightly obscure. First Chronicles 29, 14. King David is just about to get their building campaign off the ground. He's been given a vision. He's been given plans. He himself won't be the one to build it. His son Solomon will take the throne. But he's starting the the fundraising campaign for the temple of God. And this this is what he says. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have been given only what comes from your hand. And then finally, Jesus himself says in Acts, this is actually the Apostle Paul quoting Jesus, and he says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So that's it. In a nutshell, what do we do with our money? How should we be thinking about our money? Why should we even care to acquire more money so that we can give so that we can be the blessing that God has blessed us to become. Um, A few more examples without actually going to the scriptural references. Think of the rich young ruler 
the three synoptic gospels all tell of the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and he said, teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jewish speak for, I want to experience the blessings of God. I want to be one of those people that experiences life in the kingdom of God. How can I do that? Jesus knows, whether through like some divine word of knowledge or just because everyone probably knows, this is the rich guy in town, the, the rich young ruler, and he says, give, sell all your possessions and give to the poor, then come follow me. That's Luke 18. Or what about Zacchaeus, another rich man? He's the, the tax collector, the Jewish tax collector, working cahoots, with the Roman regime. Everyone hates Zacchaeus. And apparently he's really short as well. He's the wee little man that we sang songs about in Sunday school growing up. Remember that? We need to teach our kids these songs. (laughs) But unlike the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus comes to Jesus. He has an encounter with Jesus. And before Jesus even tells him to do anything with his money, Zacchaeus He has this revelation, as it were. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. So he connects Zacchaeus' wherewithal to give up half of his financial possessions to the poor and his his vow to repay anyone that he's defrauded fourfold, he says that is because the kingdom has touched down. Salvation has come to this. Did did everyone just see that? Did everyone catch that? Salvation has come to this man's house. Or what about, and this one's not to do with currency, as it were, but what about the, the time when Jesus had attracted a crowd of 7,000 people, or in another instance, 5,000 people, and they're out in the countryside. And his disciples come to him, and they say, Jesus, you need to tell these people to to go away so they can get food. And he says, well, you give them something to eat. And they said, Jesus, we don't have anything. And even if we did, there's 7,000 people here. How's this going to work? And one of them finds a little boy who happens to have seven loaves of bread, or five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus says, give them to me. He takes them, he blesses them, and a miracle takes place. It's not just money. It's, it's the boy's sustenance. It's his food. It might as well be cash in agrarian society. And finally, what about the poor widow's offering in Luke chapter 21? Jesus is in the temple, and he's watching people walk up to the offering box to put their money in. I'm sure they had a little black box, just like ours, sitting in the temple. They would have been paying the temple tax, the two drachma temple tax. And it says that he observes the rich putting in their money, and then finally a little old lady, a widow with nothing, comes up and puts in her two small copper coins if you do the math, it would have been like, like 1 64th of a day's wage. It's nothing. It's like when you see a penny lying on the ground. These days, it's like, I'm going to pick a penny up. 
It's worth less than its weight in copper. It would be less than that. It's everything this woman had. And Jesus said, see this woman? All of these rich people were putting in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, gave everything she had to live on. That's the kingdom touchdown. So we could see example after example after example of Jesus observing the way people were stewarding and giving their money or their resources and equated it with this is, this is what happens when salvation comes. This is what happens when people begin to live as if they were citizens of the kingdom. This is what happens when people begin to live on the other side of the veil. Still excited? Shall we take up an offering? No, we're not going to do that. Why give? Why give? This is an important question. Whatever we do, if you are a follower of Jesus, and I'm not assuming that we all are in the room, but we're here, so there must be some, some level of interest. Whatever we do as follower of Jesus, our motivation, the why, is just as important as the act itself. I wouldn't necessarily say more important because that would be to kind of separate the two categories out. Sometimes I do things with a questionable attitude, um, but I do it anyways because I'm a husband and I'm a father and I'm a pastor. And then I hope that as I steward the resources that God has entrusted to me, my heart will follow. And Jesus said that 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 will happen. What should our motivation be when we give money? This is a very, very important question. Now, my contention is that there's a couple of default motivations that I think most of us will, will probably feel at some level without thinking a whole lot about it. And let me, let, me, let me make my case. One of two extremes. I would say either we give out of a sense of wanting to receive compensation or we give out of some duty or sense of taxation. Compensation or taxation. Compensation would be the idea that you probably found a few verses to, to back this up, slightly out of context. And it's the idea that, well, okay, if, if I give, I'm expecting to get my money's worth. Or, or perhaps you've received, you feel like you've received a fairly decent product, and so when they do pass around the offering plate at the end of the service, maybe you'll, you'll put in a little something, because you feel like, you know, okay, I got a good hour's worth. And that's the idea of compensation. That's the idea that if I give, God owes me. If I give my money to the church or to my favorite Christian charity, then I, I, I deserve something back. I, I deserve to be compensated. God owes me. That's one end of the spectrum. I would argue the other end of the spectrum would be this idea of taxation, that God expects me to pay him because he's already done so much for me, and so now I owe God. 
Um, it's like paying taxes. In theory, you know, the city's done a great job taking care of the roads and filling in the potholes and, and, and cleaning up the streets and taking my garbage, although I, I pay for that. Um, and I have to pay it. I owe the city. I owe the IRS. And let's be honest, does anyone, do any of us at the end of the year ever feel, or April comes around, do you ever feel like, do you know what? The IRS did such a great job this year. I'm going to give them a tip. I, you know what? Just, I just feel like I've gotten more than my money's worth this year. Does anyone ever feel that way? No. You're like, okay, I'm giving because I'm obligated to give. I owe the IRS and I have to do this. I don't really feel like I'm getting my money's worth. And so I give begrudgingly. But I'm in debt to God. Either one of those two extremes are not biblical. The apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 13, verse 8. He said, Owe no one anything except to love each other. It's the debt of love. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Debt is not a kingdom principle. You know that. God is not indebted to us as if, nor are we in debt to him. Have you ever given money to something or even the church out of a sense of guilt? Have you ever experienced that? In London, uh, I don't know why they're not here, but you walk down the high street and like on every corner, there's, they, they call them chuggers. You heard of, is that a thing here? Chuggers? You guys ever heard of a chugger? A charity mugger. That's what they're called. That's what everyone knows them as. Charity muggers. And they're like lurking everywhere. And if you see some, one of them, like you just either cross the street, definitely don't make eye contact because they're like raising money for some charity and they just like, they just jump you. They like, like a mugger on the street, they just like corner you. Like, hey, you have like 30 seconds to talk. And like, before you can say no, they're like giving you their, their five-point presentation on like, you know, children in Malaysia. And next thing you know, like, you feel guilty because like you could save a child's life or you could buy a cup of coffee today. And that's typically how they sort of pitch it. You're like, oh, and they say, so, you know, can you give me 30 bucks a month? Or, or you can just let, let babies die in Asia. I'm like, well, what am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to do? Like, no, my coffee habit is more important than this children, these children you just showed me pictures of. That's guilt. That's just guilt. That is someone basically blackmailing you into a debt. God doesn't do that to us. Jesus died on the cross to pay our debt not to transfer it over to a new card with a lower interest rate. Jesus paid our debt. There is no longer a debt, which means God owes us nothing and we owe God nothing. Then why give? Why give? Now here's the trick. Many of us will argue at this point, well, hang on a second. Now, I'm no, like, prosperity gospel proponent, but I'm pretty sure there are one or two verses that say, if I give, God will give back to me. Pressed down, shaking together, running over. 
that I can't outgive God. In fact, Malachi 3.10 says, bring it into the storehouse and see if I won't just dump blessings down onto you. And there is a promise that if I seek God, if I diligently seek him, he will reward me. And that includes financial blessings. Jesus himself said to his disciples, if you leave house and home for the sake of my gospel, for the sake of following me, I will reward you with all of that in this life and the life to come. There is a reward. I am a Christian hedonist. I believe that God wants to fulfill our desires, that he wants to bless us, and that we cannot outgive him. But that doesn't answer the question, why? Why give? To put God in debt to us because I pay 10% of my income to the church. This is the conviction my wife and I have when it comes to our, our, our giving to the church. Is God now in debt to me? Does he now owe me something? Absolutely not. No more than I owe God anything. Then why give? Not compensation, not taxation. I want to talk about two other shun words, glorification and reciprocation. John chapter 12, let's go there. Let's talk about glorification first. Jesus, he's getting near the end of his earthly ministry. He's now beginning to talk quite bluntly about his crucifixion. This is what he said, verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And then Jesus says in verse 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. He's talking about the judgment of Satan. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. He's talking about being lifted up onto a cross. Why did Jesus give his very life that he might glorify his father. That he might glorify his father. He didn't have to do it. He wasn't guilted into doing it. He wasn't blackmailed into doing it. He wasn't pressured into doing it. It was his good pleasure to lay down his life to willfully sacrifice himself because it was his father's desire so that all people might be drawn to him, so that many sons and daughters might come home, so that his bride, the joy set before him, us, might experience a reconciled relationship with our maker. It was adoration. Um, I got to show you guys this. Every once in a while, the preacher just gets like a very timely sermon illustration. I, uh, I was at this the conference I was just talking about in Orlando. A little, a little crumpled up piece of paper here. You can put that up there. I, uh, some of you may have seen the Gray City, the green sweatbands. If you haven't seen them, eventually you will. 
Uh, we, we had like a ton of them made. Um, I, I brought one I was staying with Seth, who's the pastor of Grace City in Corvallis. So we roomed together and he had his little boy Malachi with him, a little eight-year-old about Isaac's age. I brought one of the sweatbands, the wristbands for Malachi. I said, Malachi, I brought this for you. The next day, I was coming back in the hotel room. He was there with Seth, and he comes up. He hands me this little wadded piece of paper. I open it up, and this is what it says. Thank you for the Grace City sweatband that really meant a lot. You filled my heart by being very nice. (laughs) And you know what was wadded up in this little note? Two $1 bills and two quarters. And I said, thanks, I was wondering when you were going to pay me. (laughs) No. I almost started crying. It was the sweetest thing ever. And then I thought, why don't my kids write me little sweet notes? (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't paying me for the wristband. He wasn't paying me for the wristband. It was adoration. He was saying, Simon, thank you so much. I, I value what you've done for me. You have filled my heart by being very nice. <laughs> when, we, when we give, when we give, it's our way of saying, Daddy, thank you. You have filled my heart by being very nice. You've saved me. You've poured your love into my heart by the Holy Spirit whom you've given to me. Thank you. It's a way of saying, Father, I know you don't need this money. You don't need my little crumpled up dollars, you know, and a couple of quarters. But it's my way of saying, I highly value you. I treasure you. In fact, I value you more than anything else in the world. It's also a way of saying I trust you. When it comes to money, there's something something about it that taps into our sense of security in life. We just bought our very first home, Shirley and I, in Portland. Um... You know, we've been married almost 10 years now, and it's just the kind of thing that you dream about. Somehow we did it. It's another story. And uh, God helped us. That's, that's obvious. But I remember that feeling of uh, basically emptying our savings account. It was, it, was, it was not very nice. It didn't feel nice at all. It was like we have this, you know, we've had this little safety net. Not a lot, but it was over in the UK. It was all British pounds, so that was a little something. And uh, we've just been there, just saving, thinking maybe someday this will be a down payment on a house. And, uh, and finally, the day came. And we transferred it all over, and it was like, that's it. Safety net, gone. Safety net, gone. And it was very unsettling. When we give, when we give to God that he might be glorified, it's another way of saying, God, I trust you. I trust you with my money. That's security. Jesus, I told you we'd get to the cross. In Luke chapter 23, verse 46, the very last words of Jesus, 
the veil is torn, and Jesus cries out in a loud voice. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He entrusts himself to his Father. When we give, we're entrusting ourselves. It's a very real, tangible, economic way. Quantifiable means of saying, God, I trust you. I trust you. That's glorification. It's hard. It's super hard. Emotionally, we're told to give with a sense of joy. I've met very, very few people in my life who can honestly say, dude, when I give money, I just like, I'm just overwhelmed with this like feeling of joy. This is why I'm convinced that when the Bible talks about joy, it must be something slightly more than just like pure emotion. I, I think there's something else going on there. It's, it's hard to trust God in this way. Glorification and reciprocation. God is generous, so are his kids. God gave his only son so that whoever might believe in him may not perish but have eternal life. God gave. Jesus laid down his own life. He, the life that the Father gave him, Jesus gave back. Why? Because the child reciprocates the gift of the Father. When we give, it's another way of saying, Father, I'm your child. You're generous. That's what I want to be like. I want to give too. We're mimicking Father. I guarantee you, little Malachi, who gave me the $2.50, learned that somewhere. And I... I 99.9% sure he learned it from his parents because I know his parents pretty well and they have just done nothing but bless me over and over and over and over and even, I mean, even talking about cash. You know, the church that sent us to start Grace City, Portland, they gave us a bunch of money. I asked for some and they gave us even more. You know where that money came from? People's pockets, just like us. Isn't that crazy? They're paying for the, this building that we're enjoying. Uh, we rent it. It's a huge blessing. Um, why would they do that? Why would they do that? What are they getting out of it? Hmm. They're acting like God's children's. God's children. His child's. His chitlins. I meant to say chitlins. Let's, let's end here. We, we need to ask ourselves one more question. Give to who? This is important. What about the church? What about the church? Oh, this, this one's controversial. We started a church um, in London. It was a blast. It was so much fun. It was hard to, to say goodbye, but God kind of had to wrench it out of our hands. It was quite painful, actually, but now we're here, so it all makes sense. And uh, 
I remember when we first started out, I was paranoid to talk about money. Because I thought, oh, no, 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 everyone, if we even bring it up, like on a Sunday morning, everyone's going to think like, oh, yeah, okay, it's the church after our money. And, uh, and so years went by, and we hardly ever talked about it. And eventually, we, we were kind of like going broke. It's like, guys, we're going to have to shut this down. Like, we just can't really pay the bills. And I realized that, that I, had not, I had not served us well by not having the courage to talk about it like Jesus talked about it. Because there's so many amazing things to give to out there, charities, secular, Christian, neutral. Um, There are needs out there, noble needs that I think as Christians we should just be giving to. You know, organizations like Compassion, that's one that we give to. There's missionaries out there. Um, so many incredible things. Guys, it's been my observation over the years that the, the actual church community um, seems to be getting more and more overlooked in terms of as a priority for giving. And I, don't, I have theories about why that is. Could be Western individualism. You know, I want to sort of decide, you know, like I'll, I'll do compassion because I get to pick out the little kid I get to sponsor in Indonesia. And I can feel sort of in control and and independent about that. And there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But when it comes to the church, it seems a bit more like, yeah, but who's really deciding how the money is spent? And I don't know. I'd rather just kind of decide personally. And so the church tends to be marginalized when it comes to giving. The problem is when we read the scriptures... That's never, ever, ever, ever the case. When the church began in Acts 2, people brought money and set it at the feet of the apostles, the leaders that God had appointed to oversee the church, and they used that to make sure that the poor were being fed. Um, I'm sure there was infrastructure to to be tended to. I'm sure there was all sorts of things, ancient Near Eastern bills to be paid. Um, but especially those who are in need, poor people. That was definitely a priority. But the church itself was being looked after. As a church, I promise you, I will never, ever, ever, by the grace of God, guilt anyone in here to give and try to pull out some you know, obscure Old Testament verse saying, look, there it is, you better give, otherwise God's going to be mad at you. Guys, I know some people would, would argue that, and okay, that's fine, that's fine. I strongly disagree. I tithe, I believe in the principle of tithing, um, but not because it's the law. I believe that everything that I do should flow out of the motivation of love. I'm generous, I give, because God has generously given to me. Personally, my wife and I, we've talked about this, uh, the tithe this Old Testament concept of giving 10% of your first fruits, bringing it into to, to your local church, as it were, the storehouse. Um, we see that as like just a logical starting point. And so that's just what we've done. And we've always aspired to give above and beyond that. Um, but I'm never, ever going to say, church, here's how we roll, 10% or just feel real bad. 
We're not going to do that. Um, we're called Grace City. Grace City. Not Guilt City. <laughs> but guys, as a church, I want us to be able to speak plainly about these things. I want us to prioritize uh, the church in the same way that we see it prioritized in Scripture. And I want us to be a blessing. When we planted Grace City, we were sent out with my, I raised my own salary um, through the gifts of individuals and, and a couple of other churches. Grace City sent us out. They gave us some money. There was a couple of other individuals that gave very, very significant gifts without me even asking. And so we, we got off the ground. I had to raise X level of capital. And then we had a four-year plan to get us going. If we reach people, if we make disciples, if we all grow together and become more and more like Christ, then, then, then we will give. We will become generous people. And we will take care of the poor. And we will bring money into the storehouse. We will take care of the local church. And by the end of year four, if all goes according to plan, we'll be a financially viable church community. So we're almost to the end of year one. And we're almost on track. We're almost on track. I would like to see us get to our goal way before the end of the fourth year. And you know why? Because I am really eager to become a greater blessing to this city. I don't want us just like pay the bills. I want us to get a vision for like, what if we had this massive surplus building up? Now let's begin to dream about making an impact in this neighborhood. Let's do things to like serve underprivileged children. Let's think of ways to contribute towards what's already being done to, to serve homeless people, poor people, homeless children and single parents in this city. I want to be a part of all of that because that's, that's the church. That's the body of Christ, loving people. But there's a process. We got a plan and it involves all of us acting like God's kids, giving to glorify Jesus and to reciprocate his generosity. So that's why we should give. You guys with me? Can we stand together, please?